This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. Writers are a strange breed. They often get lost in the lives of their characters. Philip Salem touches on this notion in his latest work, The Fifth Season. So, Philip, welcome back to 3CR. Hello, David. Good to be back. Now, this book is about lost lives. There has been a curious collection of unidentified individuals found in Australia. What's the fascination? Well, I think for me, people who go missing or people who are, who are found dead but with no identification and no backstory, they're in effect still missing somewhere because no one knows who they are, no one knows where they came from. And I think there's a kind of existential, psychological, even if you'd want to call it religious um, concern about all these things because um, we want to know roughly who we are and where we're going in our lives. Um, and something's gone very wrong when people are found dead uh, with no story. And when people individually just go missing, we don't know what's happened to them. They may be out there, they may be alive, they may be abducted, they may be altered mentally, they may be completely and utterly happy to have removed themselves from their previous lives and acquaintances and family and things like that. We don't know. So therefore, I think those of us left behind are fascinated because we want to know. So I've written a book where, in fact, I provide my own answers. Well, this is fascinating because you bring in then this concept of the writer. You introduce us to Jack, the writer, who has never written in the first person, an intriguing line, but he is doing some research on loss, but specifically people who have lost their memory, lost themselves. So writers have a curiosity about the characters they delve into. This is the thing. Jack's comment is an ironic one because a, a writer is always writing of themselves. He said he's, in effect, writing in his third person. He's sort of being an imposter in his own life at the same time as writing it because he writes it from outside himself. Um, he writes about other people's lives. But when we do that, we project. And so all people are projecting. Writers are just superb professional projectors. So it's, it, it's inevitable. You know, this is the game one is caught in all the time. But uh, in this case, Jack has various motives for writing what he writes, and everyone around him is either indifferent to what he's about or a little curious and not sure what to make of him. Well, it becomes even more interesting because Jack rents a cottage in which to write, a cottage that was previously occupied by another writer. And you have this notion of Jack virtually taking up another person's story. Yes, that's my mischief, really. If you are interested in the possibility that any writer and any person in a profession is always following somebody, um, this is the kind of play on it because he's being influenced by someone he doesn't know and hasn't met and only has heard about. So the way he's influenced is because he, he finds or he's given a book that this writer has um, produced. And uh, then he, in, in the middle part of the uh, my novel, he is reading this other novel, which gives him an idea of uh, a different version of, uh, you know, I suppose, a writer's life, but especially because it introduces a fictional version of the woman he meets, who is actually the woman who owns the cottage that he's renting. Well, I'm glad you mentioned this woman, Sarah, Sarah. because Sarah 
has a sister, Alice, who has disappeared. Now, one of the first things is Sarah's response. How does she cope with this? Yes, well, Sarah is a person who has had in her past little connection with her sister. The sister is portrayed as having had a fairly difficult kind of life, rather attached to some people she shouldn't have been, um, fell for a man who was the wrong kind of man, managed to escape from that, and then was sort of trapped at home looking after her mother, who was very ill, and her father became the man who more or less kept her there at home. But she went from one locked-in state through a boyfriend to being sort of a moral or conscious lock-in looking after her mother. And then she disappears. Alice basically got lost in the lives of other people. Her boyfriend consumed her life. Then her parents, who were well-meaning, consumed her as well. Yes. I think a lot of us do get lost in other people's lives. So whereas we were talking a bit earlier about the writer deliberately losing themselves into their characters and, of course, retaining magisterial outsiderness because, after all, they're writing it. Um, people who get caught up at that uh, do not have that control. But either way, she is not able to be very much of herself. She's only able to have been the girlfriend in one story of her life and, in, and the daughter, the dutiful daughter, in the other story of her life. But then and- Sarah, her sister, also gets lost in a way because... She takes to painting uh, murals to try and find Alice. Yes, well, Sarah, because she didn't know her sister that well, feels fairly guilty about the fact that her sister's gone missing and maybe that she, as a sister, should have done more about it. So Sarah loses herself, so to speak, because it's her grieving duty to try to find her sister. Here's another interesting element, though, because Jack takes up that quest of Sarah's to try and find Alice. So here we have an author getting lost, so to speak, in the life of another character. Yes. Sarah's a much younger woman. Jack is an older writer who just happens to, in effect, collide with this particular um, drama that's going on. And his involvement in it is one of curiosity, a writer's curiosity, I suppose, but also just a personal one. His relationship with Sarah is purely, you know, distanced. But um, he finds that her behaviour of this uh, sort of obsessive concern about her missing sister gets to him. Sarah's trying to find a sister. She's doing it whichever way she can. So she's painting murals of her sister's face and with the faces of other people who've gone missing. Now, while looking at this on a personal level, you also look at it on a cultural and historical level. You've got a quote here. Uh, The killings Keith Winshuttle says never happened, his version of history. If you killed people and never wrote it down, then it never happened. So you're speaking of the power of writing to keep lives alive. Yes, I think so. Um, um, Many people would say that that's what writers are doing all the time. Um, It's a sentiment that is worthy, social, political, and every other dimension you could imagine. But it's not something I personally think too much about as a statement because I'm doing it. And I, the way I do it is, is a more personal version of writing because I'm inventing lives uh, rather than uh, referring to real lives. Though in the fifth season, uh, there are several institutions and several lives and several all sorts of things, actually, that are historically correct. Um, But I've also invented 
other aspects which I have placed beside the historically correct. So uh, as a reader, um, I just say be a little wary because some of this is really true and some of it is my fiction. And what you also do is turn the concept on its head. Jack, I want to say something awful. It's been sort of building up in me lately. I'm beginning to think disappearing is a lie. I know this sounds crazy, but it's a lie because it says one thing, but deliberately leaves no evidence or proof that it's true. Yes. Well, I think there are very many paradoxes in our existence and the whole thing of people going missing or disappearing and maybe not having done so is the one we're caught with. There are just so many elements which we cannot have answers for in states of mind, states of existence, and also uh, other people's lives, that we are always, getting back to this term projecting, we're always trying to read into, and uh, if we are, in fact, curious about other people, and most of us are, and use characters as proxy, proxies. You know, So we're able to read about people by reading fictional people. And so the even to write about disappearance is actually to create appearances. <laughs> and then appearances themselves are maybe only that, appearances, this, and not based on much evidence. This is what I want to get into as my sort of final question. Given that this is a novel about writing and writers sort of disappearing into the lives of their characters, is this really a form of self-reflection? Um, yes, it is, inevitably. I think that the point is that writers are in a, creating a psychological um, maze, really, and, and a set of mirrors, not out of vanity and not to, to look at themselves, not to admire themselves. So certainly there are some writers, I think, who do admire themselves too much. Um, if I get a smell of that, just a sniff of it in a writer, I tend to feel uh, rather negative about them. A lot of writers self-mythologize. You know, they're, when they're writing, they're thinking of themselves and how they come over. I'm the sort of writer who quite happily be objective. Um, so I think that writers lose themselves into the work. They find themselves also, therefore, in the work. But what they are finding is not done for vanity. It may be done for personal insight. I hope that when I'm writing, I'm delivering some insights into existence through my characters and through uh, the circumstances they're in. And if I, if I don't think I've done that, I think I've probably written badly. But at the same time, I'm very interested in style. So writing for me is about the way the writing works. And that is another level of identity of self, um, and which case it's language, the way language works and the way the prose works on the page, If now that we're talking about novels. And that is another existence. That's another life. And that is a very present life for me, the actual style of the book. Well, this novel, The Fifth Season, provides an opportunity for readers to get lost in Philip Salem's ideas. So the book is The Fifth Season. Philip Salem is the author. And it's a transit lounge release. So, Philip, thank you very much for talking with me today. Thank you, David. Thanks, David. And now it's time for my author. From a very early age, we are asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? When is someone growing up? 
Is it a university student, a grown-up? Should they know what they want to be? Georgina Young's novel, Lona, is about this. Welcome to Published or Not, Georgina. Hello, thanks for having me. Now, Lona is the title, but the main character is Lona, L-O-N-A. So who is she? So Lona is, she's 19 years old when the novel starts. She lives in Melbourne and she's recently dropped out of a fine arts degree and she's just trying to figure out what she wants to do with her life and what she's doing and it tracks her through various sort of part-time jobs and, and the various relationships in her life as she's figuring out what she wants to do. But this is such a personal book, but you've written it in third person. Now, why did you choose that? Yeah, I'm not entirely sure. I, I, it just sort of happened like that. I, I find often that I'll just start writing a book or a story uh, and it just seems to whatever it is, it's, it's something will tell me like it should be third person or it should be first person. Uh, but I think the third person in Lona enables me to have a little bit of distance from Lona. So we get sort of almost a little bit of a, um, an extra insight over the top of the narrative that perhaps Lona herself doesn't have. Well, we get inside her head and see all different perspectives you know, of how Lona thinks. She actually calls it her mental arithmetic, the disordered thinking that occupies her minds. So why is she so unsure of herself? Yeah, I think just at that time in your life, there's a lot of uncertainty because there are certain things that you feel like you should be doing. And in the novel, Lona discusses, you know, these sort of rites of passage and she feels as though her life isn't aligning with that and so she gets a degree of uncertainty about what she should be doing and what she actually enjoys doing and wants to do from that and how it doesn't actually correlate with these things and I think Lona's mental arithmetic sort of is how it, it sort of in a way structures the novel so we get these sort of lists and bullet points and which I think show a bit she's almost sort of mathematical and precise in the way she thinks about things which I don't know is, is quite interesting because she's also quite a creative person but I think it sort of shows her person like that aspect of her personality in which she likes to be able to understand things logically and put them into a place where she can perhaps control them whereas other parts of her life she doesn't have that. Well let's actually look at that control because we, from the very beginning, we know she's keen on photography and she does feel in control behind the camera. But you know, she knows that now with all the selfies that are going on, people don't like unprepared moments. Yeah, I think there's something interesting about, you know, photography. You have these two different sorts of, well, not even necessarily two, but there are these distinct you have the selfies, you have pictures that are taken sort of more perhaps, well, I suppose in some ways selfies actually are quite curated. You're presenting a specific sort of image. If I can quote from the book, you have the right amount of growl to look sexy yet fierce for Tinder profiles. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. So <laughs> you definitely, selfies, they're often sort of meant to 
appear effortless, but there is definitely this degree of construction that goes into them. And loners coming at photography from like an artistic perspective, which again is often about deliberateness. And she talks about that in relation to her analog photography, which is a lot more deliberate and it has to be because there's a finite amount of film. And once you run out, you run out, you have to get a new roll of film. So she also is very deliberate in her art making. But I think as the novel progresses, she becomes a bit more freer as she experiments in different forms when she starts painting, which she hasn't done much of up till then. And when she then starts making these books, sort of like artist kind of books, deconstructed books towards Mm -hmm. the end of the novel. And I think that shows her practice evolving and her willing to do something different and take more risks in her work. Actually, it is about art, the emotions that come out of making art, that she becomes so succinct. All the things that she can't say about herself, she says about art. Another quote from uh, Lona, the book by Georgina Young. Art like artillery, like an act of self-surgery. Art makes it easy to be brave, makes it easy to rage and strut and feel. And look, I love the way that, you know, you, you had to write about the art that Alona was constructing. Those books would have been hard to think about, first of all, and then write about. (laughs) Yeah, I I don't know. I think I wanted her to have some sort of creative medium, which is her her passion and what she wants to do. Because I think in many ways that sort of feeds into her feeling a bit isolated or different from other people because she's trying to pursue this artistic career or path potentially just it's you really have to sustain it yourself there it isn't something that you can just get a job in necessarily so it's really about it's for her it's an outlet but she's trying to work out whether it's just merely something that you know it's not merely but something that is hers and that is her personal thing or if it's something that she can use and use as a career and I think the book shows her torn between whether she wants to pursue art as a career or art as just her as art I guess I suppose. She also picks up a lot of of terms from her friend Tab and you see how their um, relationship sort of wanes and wafts over this year and a half but I think the one term that I um, that she learned from Tab her friend was taste whether it was in music or anything, is internalised misogyny. Now, that's quite a mouthful. And there's a lot of other terms that Tab comes out with as a mate that she takes on. And you really wonder whether she's just repeating or whether she she truly believes it. Yeah, I I sort of wanted Tab to be maybe like a bit more sure of herself in these sort of respects. And so she has these things which she's discovered, sort of ideas that she's really drawn to. And then she'll be, you know, talking to Lona about them and Lona obviously picks them up. And I think she's at a stage where she's still grappling with what she thinks and feels about things. So she's taking these sort of little phrases or facts or whatever that she's been given by Tab and is working out how she feels about them and whether what parts of them she actually identifies with because she yeah she sort of uses them as these almost catchphrases but then she, at the same time she's often questioning them and, and thinking how is this aligning with what I'm doing what my actions are so yeah it's just an interesting thing there so you know with misogyny we often think about the male gaze and you know 
Leona says, the male gaze, the, the thing she always wanted, despised, coveted. So how is she with men? Yeah, so I think, again, that sort of is showing, I, like, I wanted Lona to be quite a, like, like a contradictory character because I feel like generally we all contradict ourselves at some points. And I think she, I mean, that shows that she, because during the course of the novel, she has her first romantic relationship. So up until that stage, you know, she's not had, she's wanted that attention, but also been unsure about what she wants from it. And a bit, I think because of these things, she's, you know, reading these ideas she's encountered, that she is alone and she's introverted. So she's working out what she actually wants from these sort of relationships or if she even wants these relationships. And yeah, I think that just leads to a bit sort of more uncertainty for her. She is, she is uncertainty, uncertain. And she also knows she, she actually does change herself with different people. And I'm going to get Georgina Young to ring, read from Lona for, about how she feels that she should be in front of her father. This is, this is from page 158. Dad believes in the power of positive thought and he believes in Lona. When he asks her how things are going, she says, good. He accepts this because, of course, his daughter, who he thinks is brilliant, is okay. It is inconceivable to him that she might be anxious or not okay, and so she does not feel as though she can be these things around him. She wants to be the things he thinks she is, the competent daughter, the on top of things and ever reliable and always fine daughter. She is with him. With him. And then she knows that with her first boyfriend, George, she has to be the creative, cynical and intelligent girlfriend. So she's just really finding out who she is, isn't she? I think it begins to wear on her a bit, the idea that she feels she has to compartmentalise different parts of her life and be different people to different people. But I think she's just, that's how she lives her life and because she likes to keep things for herself and keep parts of herself for herself as well. And I think that's why she struggles so much being in this relationship that she is in in the novel because she she wants to keep parts of herself for herself and her boyfriend can't understand that he thinks you know being in a relationship means that sort of free exchange and you give all of yourself but yeah she has that with all the different people in her life she's different people for all of them and I'm not sure whether that's a good thing or a bad thing but yeah that's just sort of an idea that I wanted to explore. Well she even gets the nickname from uh some nerdy friends, Ramona Flowers. <laughs> and she sort of thinks that she loves it because, you know, she's never thought of herself as black choker, pink tights girl. Yeah, yeah. So Ramona Flowers is a um, character from a, well, from a graphic novel and a um, movie called Scott Pilgrim versus the World. And so it's sort of this, and again from Tab, we have these ideas of, you know, the manic pixie dream girl and this, and a girl who exists in a narrative to, you know, basically, you know, like pep up and the male character, the main character. And so she's like, well, is it so bad if I am this? If, you know, if it makes me happy, if it makes other people happy. And so she's just questioning what her role is and what, what it means to play different roles. Absolutely. And, you know, I've been a woman for a long time and I learned something from this book. I didn't realise women had a stance, lopsided, unobtrusive. <laughs> and non-threatening. 
Are we really conditioned to be comfortable, lopsided? Yeah, I don't, ooh, I don't know. It probably differs from person to person, but I, I don't know. I find myself often just, I'll, I'll find myself wherever I am, sort of like, you know, a bit more, I don't know, just lopsided, you know, leaning on one leg or if you're in a seat on a train, you try to, you know, um, bundle up as tight as you can to not intrude on anyone else's space and you just try to make yourself smaller to not be obtrusive to others or to even, you know, perhaps get attention from others. You just want to, you know, get on with things and just be left alone sometimes. <laughs> there's very much a Melbourneness about this book. There's the bars, there's the streets. So it's where you've chosen to set the book in a much younger part of Melbourne that I know, but a fun part. Is there really a roller skating rink? Yeah, yeah. It's sort of semi based on one that I went to a couple of times, you know, birthdays when I was in primary school with um classmates. And I I don't know, I feel like for me Often roller skating, rollerblading is sort of a symbol of freedom in narratives and I wanted to sort of bring that into it. But, yeah, I, do, I don't know if I was like I wanted to make it deliberately Melbourne, but I definitely wanted to tell a story that I was sort of familiar with and, well, yeah, it just seemed sort of natural to set it in Melbourne, a place that I know so well and that I love. <laughs> Well, this book has humour in unexpected places. No wonder it's won the Tex Prize. Congratulations <laughs> for that. Thank you. <laughs> that was really quite a big one to win, Tex being a particularly fine Melbourne publisher. Yes, yeah, yeah, and, yeah, perfect for a Melbourne-heavy book. Yeah. <laughs> well, if you could instantly know the rules to being an adult, would you make growing up easier? Georgina Young has a 20-year-old woman questioning herself and those around her in Lona. Thank you very much, Georgina. Thank you for talking with me on Published or Not. Thank you so much for having me. It was lovely. Well, Jan, that takes us out for another week. And look, more books to read for next week, more authors to chat with. We will do our best to keep bringing you more authors next week. See you then. Well... Let's talk then. <laughs> You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR.